The Mountain Vista Baptist Church podcast features the preaching and teaching of Pastor Robert Perry and the guest speakers of Mountain Vista Baptist. The purpose of this podcast is to help believers grow, to edify the saints, and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter number two, and a couple weeks ago, we've started our series here on Wednesday night through the book of Revelation, and uh, verse by verse, or segment by segment, and uh, we started off, before we get jumped into Revelation, we started in the book of Daniel, and of course, uh, we said that we, some can consider the book of Daniel to be uh, the uh, revelation of the Old Testament, and in order to have a, a proper understanding of the events that are unfolding through the book of Revelation, it's wise to have a good understanding of what's taking place there uh, from the visions and the uh, dreams that Daniel was given as well. And uh, so we look through chapter number one already, and chapter number one, we see that uh, that structure of uh, that, that chain of custody in which this uh, letter is brought to us from. Then, of course, uh, we are introduced to the human author, uh, John, the Apostle John here is exiled on the Isle of Patmos, and, and uh, as he's there, the Bible tells us that... Um, he is there exiled on that, on, on that island all by himself, and he hears a voice, it says, as the sound of a trumpet. And that sound startles him, and he begins to turn around to see, and the first thing he sees is uh, he sees seven golden candlesticks. And uh, there in the midst of them, though, he says he sees one as unto the Son of God. And he uh, speaks unto, it tells us what uh, the, uh, the, the voice as a trumpet said there in verse number 11, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. And it goes on to, to, to discuss and to introduce us to those seven churches. Then, of course, as we get to the ending of chapter number one, uh, verse number 19 gives us kind of the outline of the book of Revelation. We discussed some of that as well, where it says, write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The things which he has seen are the things that are those events that we covered in chapter number one. We went through that in detail, no doubt. Then, of course, we said, well, what are that, what's that second segment then? What, uh, what is included in the things that are, um, that happen before the things that are hereafter. And uh, we said those are, of course, the events or these letters, these seven letters that we find in chapter two and chapter number three. And so we began to study those things that are, and we said, well, how can they be are when they were present tense and are for, uh, for John in his day, but here we are thousands of years later. Wouldn't that be were for us? But we see the, uh, the prophetic aspect of these letters as well and how that involves what is taking place, spanning the entire church age. And we'll talk more about that again tonight. But as we get, jumped into chapter two last week, or yeah, chapter two last week, we examined... Um, we examined the uh, uh, book of uh, the, the letter to the church of Ephesus. That's the first one that is, re- is represented there, and we discussed some of those things. And so I'd like to tonight dive right back into things and uh, our, our analysis of the seven letters here to the seven churches in Asia. And let's pick up in verse number eight as we begin. In uh, Revelation chapter two, verse number eight, it says, And unto the angel of the church of Smyrna write, uh, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the uh, blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. 
Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and uh, I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Our Father, we do thank you for this night tonight. We thank you for all that has been accomplished already today and throughout the rest of this week as well with our wonderful services on Sunday and the guests that you gave us with Community Day, our beginning of Vacation Bible School on Monday, and the young people that have been here all week long, our volunteers that have helped to make it all take place. And Lord, I ask now tonight that as we've had a long week already, uh, maybe some are weary from the week already, Lord, then some tired, I ask that you just give us strength tonight as we study your word and the Holy Spirit guide us as we do so. Lord, I ask now that you would uh, speak through me and give me the word to speak as I deliver your word tonight, and that you be honored, glorified, and praised through it all. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we dive back into these letters tonight, we'll, of course, come to the second one, the Church of Smyrna, as you noticed there. And uh, we'll review some of the framework, though, that we discussed last week. So we're all on the same page, making sure that as we jump into this this letter, that we uh, are all on the same page with our studying here. Of course, we're using three complementary methods of interpretation as we come to each and every one of these letters. And all three of these perspectives are necessary, in fact, because as I said, they're complementary. They're necessary to be able to get a full understanding of uh, why God has given us these letters here at the beginning of the book of Revelation. The first way that we are going to examine this letter tonight, just like we did last week, is uh, just taking it at the plain sense of Scripture. And so, Brother John, if you give me that next slide there, we'll, this is how we're going to go through it. And the plain sense is just we're going to be specific. We're going to be historical in the matter. We're going to be literal in as, as we, uh, as we uh, study this letter. And we're going to look at what was taking taking place in those times, and we understand that these seven letters to these seven churches uh, were seven literal letters to seven literal churches who had real people, who had uh, real attendees and members, and who were living in that first century in Asia Minor. They, they were experiencing a variety of circumstances, as we find in these letters, no doubt, and Jesus, uh, along with that, gives them a variety of instructions to go along with the things that they were experiencing. The second way that we'll approach the letters is in, as we said, a perpetual sense that there's a general, universal, or timeless application uh, to these truths that are found in this letter. Now, for instance, we looked at uh, the church of Ephesus last week. And we said that the Lord praised them for some of the things that they did, that they, they uh, stood for truth, right? They, they tried those who said they were apostles and were not. And when they found them to not be apostles, what did they do? They cast them out. They, were, they would not put up with false teachers. And so the Lord praised them because of that. And we said, listen, that we would hear a praise from the Lord as well today if we would stand for truth, if we would stand for right, and, and, st- and be sure to stand against false teachers as well. He had somewhat against them, though, as he said that they had, they had left their first love. And they had, they had filled their calendar and made themselves busy about certain works and accomplishing certain things. But unfortunately, they had lost sense or uh, priority of the most important thing. It, it's, it's, 
How many of you know that sometimes you go into a city, a place, uh, and they have a hospital, right? And that hospital might be named after some, uh, some Christian figure like St. Mark's Hospital or St. John's Hospital or whatever the case might be. The reason for that many times is it was started by some religious organizations. Oftentimes, a church helped start that. And starting a, a hospital and ministering to people's health needs is a very needy thing. It's a very important thing. But unfortunately, a lot of times we find that people, churches and organizations like that make that the entire thing, and they forget the gospel. Let me say that as we support missionaries here at Mountain Vista, we're going to support missionaries that are going to go and preach the gospel. We're going to support missionaries that are going to go and start churches. I'm all for a missionary taking dental, dentistry over to the field. I'm all for a missionary going and helping medically speaking as well and helping build buildings and making sure things are, 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 are put together for them. And those things are, yes, necessary, but what good does it profit a man? Should he gain the whole world and to lose his own soul? And so we have to realize that we can do good things in place of the most important thing sometimes. And Jesus said, because we do those good things in place of the most important thing, he says, I got something against you, Church of Ephesus. And listen, we can look in our world today even and find that there's churches, unfortunately, that have fallen into that trap. We here at Mount Vista could fall into that trap if we're not careful. And we must keep the priority, the main thing, the main thing. And so we will keep, of course, uh, uh, we're, 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 we are studying this book and seeing that there's a plain sense of the history historical, literal uh, sense of what is being said here for the church of that day. But there's also a perpetual sense in the fact that there's a universal or timeless application to those church truths to even churches today as well. But finally, we'll consider the prophetic or eschatological meaning of these letters as well. And Jesus selected these seven churches and arranged them in a certain order to represent the church changing over a period of time, or what we would consider to be the church age. We talked about Ephesus kind of uh, being the beginning of that last week, and we said it's clear to note that because Ephesus was the first one in the line of letters that were given, of course. I think there's another uh, slide there, if you give it to me, Brother John, with the, the clock on it. Um, and uh, and it's that, uh, the way it was given kind of represents a time-changing as well as it goes in clockwise manner as well. Uh, but nevertheless, we see that the fact that there are seven churches also... We talked about the number seven being that of uh, completion or 100%. So the message that is found in this portion, chapter 2 and chapter 3, yes, went to a specific church, of whether it be Ephesus or Smyrna or, or Laodicea or whatever the case might be, but it is also a message for the entirety of the church as well. For every church that at any time, as long as the church exists, it has an importance to it as well. And so we find that uh, we will look over the past 2,000 years or so and see how the church has unfolded and the events that have taken place. And we'll be able to look back with hindsight and see how the Lord was actually giving us a prophetic overview, if you may, of what the church would go through. And in that way, can I say it that this, like this, that these letters, they serve as a time clock or a, a, and not necessarily counting forward in time, but more like they're counting down in time to help us to see how close we are to the end. Now, remember now, the, if we put any dates to anything, these are not hard, fast dates by any means. 
we, there's no man knoweth the hour in which the Lord will return. And uh, so we are not going to stand up here and speculate and, and say, here is uh, t- uh, 222 reasons why the Lord will return in 2022, okay, or something crazy like that. And we're not going to make things up along the way, but we can see that there is a prophetic sense in, this, uh, in what we're seeing here as we're studying the Scriptures. And so the prophetic quality of these letters is important, and, uh, and they are found here in the book of Revelation as it kind of unfolds, and they're intended to alert the church to the approaching end of the age. Only those living at the end of the age uh, are going to be able to look back and decode it because there's no way that someone in the first century could have read these letters and looked forward and seen how it would all unfold. But with hindsight, we can see, and we'll talk more about that at the end of the message tonight, as how how the church of Smyrna, how it represents the second step or the second segment in the church age. But as we always will, we're starting here tonight with the uh, literal historical setting. And number one, I want you to see with me here in verse number eight, that Christ is characterized by his deity and resurrection power. Christ is characterized by his deity and resurrection power. To, power. Read verse number eight with me again. It says, and unto the angel of the church of Smyrna write, these things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. As we learned even last week, these letters are highly structured, they're well laid out, and the structure repeats from letter to letter. And so the way that the letter was written to the church of Ephesus, the layout, the, 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 how it had an introduction with the church that it was being written to, an introduction from the one who's writing it, Jesus Christ, and giving part of what he, how he was introduced back in chapter number one as well. And then, of course, a commendation and a correction as well. All that kind of flows through each and every one of these. And we see that the first beginning of this in chapter two and verse number eight is it introduces us to this church. It's the church of Smyrna. Now, the name Smyrna is a, a transliteration from the Greek word Smyrna, uh, which uh, just simply means myrrh. And so I put it to you like this, like um, maybe uh, your name, in Sp- you might have a, a way to say your name in Spanish, but sometimes your name is just going to be your name. And so therefore, that's what a transliter- transliteration is. Uh, they didn't have an English word to take and turn into Smyrna. So they just took how you would pronounce it in the Greek and made it in English. And so we, see, we read it as Smyrna. But the word Smyrna means myrrh. And so I think I got a, a, a graph there for that as well. And myrrh is a natural gum or resin that comes from the Middle East, a Middle Eastern tree, and it's used to make a fragrant ointment. Now, of course, you probably have heard of this myrrh before, as we understand that that was one of the gifts that was brought to our Lord and Savior Jesus when he was born there in Bethlehem, as they brought frankincense, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Uh, this, they would, of course, uh, myrrh was most commonly associated with death and burial, since it had uh, a, a primarily embalming spice that was used to prepare dis- dead bodies. Today, if you were to try to find Smyrna on the map, you would find it called Izmir. Uh, It's called Izmir, and it's uh, still a thriving city they found in Turkey today. But in Jesus' day, it was known as Smyrna, and uh, it was just another Roman city. Another Roman city like any other. It was a Roman city that was full of pagan temples. And most notably, it it was known for the temple to the emperor Tiberius. 
That made the town, if you may, the heart of, uh, of emperor worship in Asia Minor. And as such, it became an early, it, it became, the, the, the city became an early persecutor of Christians. See, Roman law at the time prohibited any other religious uh, worshiping outside of worshiping the emperor of that day. The only exception they made was for the Jews. You want to know why they made that exception? It was because the Jews were known as being hard-nosed. The Jews were known as not, not obeying the command that was given down to them. And so instead of fighting against them, instead of throwing a bunch of people in the prison and all that, they just gave them a free pass, if you may, so that they could worship. And in their mind, Judaism was like, eh, it's whatever, it's not going to bother us anyway. We've still got power over them. We'll just let them do their thing over there, and then we won't worry about it. And so that was the only exception in religious worship in that day was that of Judaism. Now, Christianity came along, though, and the Romans in the early days just considered Christianity to be an offshoot of Judaism. They said it's just another form of it, and it's not going to hurt us at all or anything along those lines. And, uh, but before the end of the, the first century, the church had become predominantly Gentile in its makeup than, instead of just Jewish in its makeup. And as a result, the Romans came to see the church as being distinct from Judaism and then therefore a threat to the empire. And because of that, guess what happens? Great persecution begins to roll out. The Jews rejected, of course, Christianity as well. So guess what happened? Jew and Roman government, they, they come together to bring persecution against the true church. And Smyrna seems to have been on the forefront of all this transition from tolerating Christianity to transitioning to persecuting of Christianity and persecuting of believers. One of the most maybe uh, notable martyrs that his life was lost in Smyrna was one of the early church bishops named Polycarp, uh, a man discipled by John himself. And looking at this letter, we can see that Smyrna's record of persecution reflects Jesus' words to this church beginning with his description. Notice again here in verse number eight what he says. I'm writing to the angel of the church of Smyrna. He says, these things saith who? The first and the last, which was dead and is alive. He begins this introduction to this church and introducing himself as the eternal God. Jesus says that he's the first and the last, the one who was dead and has come alive. And remember, Jesus addresses each church based off of one of the details that described him back in chapter number one. I want to go back there and see how this plays out again. Look at verse number, um, verse number 13. And in the midst, chapter number one, verse number 13, in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about with paps, he is ascribing Jesus in his glorified form. But before this, of course, we find in uh, verse number five, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And we, we, it says he comes in the clouds and every eye will see him. One, part of that description found here in chapter number one is going to be in the introduction to each and every one of these churches. And the part of the description that Jesus chooses to use as describing or introducing himself plays key 
into some of the thoughts or the instructions that Jesus is trying to give to the church. He says, he introduces himself first as the eternal God there. And then he also says he's the resurrected Lord. In this case, the connection to the way he introduces himself with how he was described in chapter number one and how it relates to this church, I believe is obvious because this church is what? It's destined for persecution. We're talking about how this would be on the forefront of the church beginning to receive persecution, not only from Jews, but also the Roman government as well. And much in the same manner, he goes on to tell them that some of them will even die a death later on as he writes in this letter. In the same manner, what did our Lord and Savior experience? He experienced persecution. He would experience ultimately death on the cross. And then he rose again, proving he had power to bring life back from the dead. And he has promised that those who believe in him will experience the same transformation he experienced as well. So just as Jesus faced death obediently, the message to the church here, the message to the church in Smyrna, the message to the church today is this. Just as Jesus faced death obediently, so should Christians be faithful and obedient to the Lord knowing that death is not the end of us. Knowing that death is not the, it does not say all is over, done, game over. It does, that's for the Christian. That's not the truth. For the Christian, uh, it just moves us closer to our Lord and Savior. For the, for the Christian, it just means that we get to experience uh, uh, the, uh, the face of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And from there, Jesus moves to acknowledging that this church is also suffering tribulation and poverty. Notice point number two with me tonight in verses 9 and 10, that not not only did, is Christ uh, characterized by his deity and resurrection power, but number two, the church is commended for its faith and its perseverance. In verse number nine, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are, uh, 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 but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you in the prison, that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. The tribulation that is spoken of here, especially on the very front end anyways, uh, at this time when John would have been writing, around 96 AD or so, uh, would have most likely been tribulation as a result of Jewish oppression. As I mentioned, the Roman oppression would come later on, and, uh, but their poverty was probably close associated with the tribulation they were experiencing as well. Can I say that as we consider the perpetual sense of this portion of Scripture tonight, that we all can take from this to realize that sometimes we just must be willing to accept the sacrifice before us? See, verse number nine says this, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Most labor trades in the uh, Roman society of that day were tightly controlled by powerful trade unions. Now, membership to the union required, uh, was required if you wanted to work your certain trade. 
So let's just put, let's say it like this. If you were a carpenter, you had to be a part of that union. If you, were, uh, if you were a blacksmith, you had to be part of that union and so on. And if you were a fisherman, you had to be a part of it, uh, the fisherman's union and so on and so forth. Or you weren't, weren't able to practice. You didn't have the stamp of approval. Uh, you didn't have the permit, if you may, the work permit. All right. And so in those days, the, the unions also, they worshiped pagan gods. The unions had their own pagan gods that they would worship. And in order to be a part of the union meant that you also had to participate in all that the union went through and all that the union did and all that the union uh, commanded. That meant participating in ritualistic worship to false gods as well. And so as these unions worship pagan gods and participation in ritual worship and sacrifice was required as being a part of that union membership, a Christian who would, who would uh, reject worshiping that false god, the, the Christian who would refuse to worship the trade union's god would be set out of the union. Guess what happened when you were set out of the union? You had no work. You had no job. And therefore, that would, having no work, having no job would lead to what? Poverty. And so we find that that was a sacrifice that the Christians there at the Church of Smyrna would have had to endure. And my friends, I'm just here to tell you tonight, sometimes we're going to face some, some sacrifices in our life if we're going to stand for what is true, if we're going to stand for what is right. I, I don't want to belabor the point here tonight, but while I was in college, I, I went to college to be able to study to be a preacher and to do what I'm doing today, right? But while I was there, I had the school bill that I had to pay. And uh, that meant that get, finding a job that would be able to pay, and, uh, pay me enough to pay my bill and get through college and such. Well, when I first arrived on campus there at Hal's Anderson, I ended up getting a job at Americall, which is a telemarketing uh, uh, business, okay? And so my job, in, uh, it, it, in, it included sitting at a cubicle with a screen in front of me, with a headset much like this, bigger though, uh, and, uh, and I would sit there and this computer screen would switch and it would have a person's name and the person would say hello. The, the computer did all the work for me. I didn't have a phone, nothing. It just dialed. As soon as I hung up, it dialed another number and I was picking up and talking to somebody else. But I'd hear hello and I'd say, hi, John, my name's Bobby. I'm calling with Discover Credit Card and you've been pre-approved for the new Discover blah, 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 you know, and I go on through all that type of thing. I went through that job and my, my uh, schedule w when I hired on was Monday through Friday. And uh, my availability did not include Saturdays and Sundays. One day we were in the dialer and there was about 10 seats in there. And I was on this side and maybe three before me and I was here kind of in the middle of the dialer. Well, the floor manager came in that day, and he started over here behind me, and I could hear what he was saying. He's saying, listen, we've got mandatory work this Saturday. We've got to pick up on our sales. We've got to get more Discover cards into people's hands and all of that. You've got to be here at, at 8 o'clock in the morning. And I heard student after student, because everyone in my dollar almost was students from Howells Anderson as well. They said, okay, I guess I'll be here. Okay, I guess I'll be here. And at, at every one, about five, six or down, I'm here, and I'm like, I'm not working Saturday. I ain't going to do it. I didn't come here to work at Americall. I didn't come to get people to have to discover credit cards. I came to work in ministry. 
And I've got, I've got, a, I've got a ministry on Saturday. That I'm, I've got people that are expecting me to come visit them. I've got work to do for the ministry. And that's why I'm here, not so that I can learn how to do all this garbage here with the AmeriCall and phone telemarketing and all that type of thing. And so everyone in the dialer said, okay, I guess I'll be there. The dialer manager said, I don't know if you heard this or not, but you got to be here at 8 o'clock this, uh, on Saturday morning. I said, nope, I ain't going to be here. He, he, he has already passed me, and he's retracted back. He says, excuse me? I said, no, my availability is Monday through Friday. I don't, I don't work Saturdays. It's mandatory. You've got to be here or you'll lose your job. I said, I guess I'll find another one. You say, Pastor, weren't you worried about paying your, your school bill? Yes, I was. <laughs> but I wasn't there for a miracle. I was there because God had me there for a purpose. And I was going to learn in, in the ministry on Saturday, not, by, not in the telemarketing booth on Saturday. Now, you take it as you, as you please and apply it to your life tonight, but sometimes you're going to be tried. Sometimes you're going to have to make a decision. Am I going to stand for what this, this word says, or am I going to do off of how I feel about the matter? And I pray that the word of the Lord wins out every time. But we find that sometimes we must accept sacrifice. We also realize that a lot of, many a times we will, we will be attacked by Satan. Verse number 9 tells us that. It says, I know the blasphemy of them that which, which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Jesus blames the church's troubles on the Jews who were not really Jews, but just simply instruments of the devil, a synagogue of Satan, as he puts it. And Jesus' words would give us a clear indication of how Jesus views those of the Jewish background who do not recognize him as their Messiah. Yeah, they might have been Jewish. Yes, they were born into a Jewish family, but he says they were Jews in name only. Romans 2 and verses 28 and 29 says, For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. See, they might have been born of Abraham's seed, but they had not done the deeds of Abraham. Specifically, they had not believed that Jesus was the Christ. Abraham believed that the pro, uh, in the promised Messiah. And let me say, he believed sight unseen also. He had never seen Christ, but he knew one would come, that he would come. But here the Jews had seen Jesus in the flesh and still rejected him. And Jesus said of them that were persecuting and causing trouble to the church there in Smyrna, they're just simply instruments or tools of the devil, the synagogue of Satan. So the Lord sees those who aren't for him uh, to be against him, my friends. We must understand that. There's one of two people. You're one of two people in this world. You're either of Christ or you're not. There's no third, th third option. There's no other way. You can't say, well, I, I, I'm for Jesus, but I just am not for him. There's no straddling the fence. You're either his or you're not. You are either a believer in Jesus or you are his enemy. 1 John chapter 2, verses 22 and 23 says, Who is a liar? But he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. Guess what he says the one who denies Jesus is the Christ is? He says this, He is antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father, but he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. So Jesus says he knows the true heart of those who are persecuting the church, and yet Jesus does not say that he's going to stop the persecution, though. You note that? Look at verse number 9 again. 
I know thy works. I know thy tribulation and poverty. I know you're rich, he says, though in all actuality. I know all the blasphemy of those who say they're Jews but are not. They're just simply the synagogue of Satan. And we're, it's like we're sitting there waiting. All right, here's Jesus. He's going to come in. He's going he's to be the lone ranger, right? He's going to come in and he's going he's to win and he's going to make everything right. But he never says he's going to do it. He continues to allow them to go through the persecution. Instead, he says, he says, in their persecution, in their poverty, and in all of the tribulation they're experiencing, they're actually rich. How can that be true, though? How can be one, one be in poverty and f- facing tribulation and, and all this persecution and be rich? What Jesus is saying is this. He's saying that their suffering and tribulation is ultimately earning them treasures in heaven. They may be poor here on this earth, but because they endure that trial well and they turn it into a witness for him, they will be rewarded in heaven. But that reward will not be an earthly one because rewards that we await for from Jesus are not given to us until we experience the resurrection. And that's far more preferable since heavenly rewards, guess what? They don't wear out. That's why Jesus said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not corrupt. We can lay up for ourselves treasures here on this earth, but they're going to go away. I was getting my clothes ready this evening, and I was uh, steaming my pants, and, and there was a, a, a wet spot on my, on my suit pants. And Jen said, what is that? Why are they all wet? I said, there was a stain or something. I was trying to get it cleaned off. You know what? When I bought this suit, it was pristine. When I bought it, it was nice. I played a game or two too many of ba- basketball or soccer in it in my time since owning it. I've, uh, you know, we've got vehicles and we put a premium on, premium on our vehicles. We wash them. Some go as far as waxing them and doing all those types of things and taking great care of them. I promise you one day they're going to end up in a junkyard. Your home might be beautiful, and I, hope, I pray that you take care of your home. These are things that God gives us. We ought to do that. We ought to take care of our things, and we ought to be good stewards of what God gives us. But my friends, one day they will all be demolished. The only thing that truly matters is what we lay up, for, uh, lay up in heaven, and that's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is reminding the church to have eyes for eternity, to see your life and circumstances from an eternal perspective, not just a temporal one. So don't get caught up in what we can obtain here and now. Get caught up in what we can obtain for the Lord and treasures that can be laid up in heaven. Matthew 5 and 11, verse number 12 says, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Can I also say quickly, I'll just touch on this before moving on to the next point. But we also can anticipate suffering. Look at verse number 10. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you. He didn't say might. He said he shall cast some of you in the prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He says not to fear the situation, even as they might face death for their faith. He says not to fear. See, because fearing death is an impediment to pleasing Jesus because it gets in the way of our obedience. See, if we're fearful of, our, uh, of death, if it, and I'm not talking about being some morbid, strange, like, bring it, bring it on. Give me death. 
You know, what was it, Patrick Henry who said, give me liberty or give me death? You know, I'm not, maybe not that type of a stance, but I'm saying we shouldn't have this inordinate uh, fear of death. As a Christian, we know that it just ushers us into the presence of our Savior. See, fear of death causes us to make bad choices, selfish choices that would be opposite of faith. And, the, and that fear is ultimately pointless since we know that death isn't an ultimate bad thing for the Christian. So the church shouldn't let fear drive their response to their circumstances, but instead they should enter into their suffering with confidence, knowing that Christ is for them and is with them. They are enduring tribulation and poverty, but the Lord isn't going to remove those things. Instead, he tells the church how to endure them with their witness intact. And what a testimony. What a testimony it is when someone goes through the, that trial or that tribulation and glorifying Jesus through it all. Jesus' goal for the church wasn't in preserving their earthly comfort or lengthening their, their eternal life. His goal was encouraging their earthly witness for His glory. And through that obedience, they, may, they maximize their eternal rewards. Now listen, he says, you're going to be, some of you are going to be sent in, uh, put in the prison. Roman imprisonment was not a lifelong sentence. Nobody served a life sentence in Roman prisons. See, the Romans' way of thinking was, why should I give a prisoner, a criminal, free lodging, free food, and all those things? Why should I give a criminal those things? And so if it was a minor offense, they might get a fine. They'd probably get beaten or scourged and then said, don't do it again or you're going to experience this again. If it was a major offense, guess what would happen? Death. Now, I'm not necessarily saying up here advocating for neither or other, you take or leave it or whatever you want to put it there. But all I'm saying is that's how the Romans were. Therefore, the deadline of 10 days is consistent with the time of the Roman justice system to bring about a verdict and to carry out a sentence. It may have been just the time required to be able to transport a prisoner from prison to the Roman amphitheater to where they would be fed into the lion's den maybe. But the number 10 also, I believe, is, is symbolic. Remember in the book of Daniel when uh, the, the Daniel and his men were found 10 times better? And we said, how can we really qualify that or quantify that? But we said that the number 10 oftentimes in the scripture has the meaning of testimony. And therefore, when we look at it that way, we see that Jesus is hinting at an opportunity for these, for these believers to have a proper testimony for him as they experience this tribulation. It was Jesus' will that the church in Smyrna be martyred and persecuted for his namesake. And that opportunity was a blessing for those Christians because of what was at stake. See, if they made the most of the opportunity to be a witness unto death, they stood to gain great heavenly rewards. Jesus himself promised it like this, Matthew 5 and 10. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now lastly, notice with me, the church is challenged by God's reward and promise. The church is challenged by God's reward and promise. Notice verses 10 and 11. Uh, again, uh, verse number 10, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, and ye shall be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the, the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. The key, Jesus says, 
is that the church is the, that the church faced this coming trial in a certain way. What way is that? Faithfully. Face this trial faithfully. Faithful in this context doesn't refer to the issue of salvation, though. Understand that tonight. When Jesus said, be faithful unto death and I'll give you a crown of life, he's not promising, well, if you stay faithful until you die, then you get a home in heaven. Because our home in heaven isn't based off of our own work. It isn't based off of what we can do. See, these believers are already saved by their faith and nothing can change their eternal destiny. Romans 8, verses 38 and 39, For I am persuaded, Paul said, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, Paul says nothing in death or life can separate us from Christ. Nothing on earth, nothing under the earth or in heaven can separate us from Christ. The bottom line is this, nothing, nothing at all. There is no such thing as being separated from Christ when you're a believer. There's no such thing as that. So being faithful in this context refers to the believer's behavior in the face of persecution. What does that believer say? What does the believer do in response to this tribulation and to the persecution? Do they agree to worship pagan idols so that they can escape death? Do they recant their faith in Jesus to avoid torture? See, if they made those choices, my friends, the relationship with Jesus, it would not be at risk, but eternal rewards would be. And so we find that the promise here in verse number 10 is, is that uh, you will receive a crown of life, a crown for your faithfulness. Faithfulness, Jesus specifically said this, he says, they that remain faithful through that short trial would receive the crown of life. Again, though, because it's called the crown of life, one might quickly assume and, uh, and assume wrongly that that crown of life has something to do with salvation because we immediately maybe attach it to eternal life, which is heaven and salvation. And, uh, but again, that would be a wrong conclusion because we had steered away from our rules of interpretation. What is the, the main rule of interpretation, the golden rule of interpretation? When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense, because you don't want to end up with nonsense. And so we find here that if we follow the rules of interpretation, we must find out what the Bible has to say about crowns. Well, obviously, a crown is a symbol, and therefore, we need to look at how that symbol is used. Now, we don't have time tonight to really flush it all out, but that, the Greek word for crown, Stephanos, which refers, it refers to a wreath, like the, like the Greeks would give an Olympic uh, participant when they won, at, uh, when they were an Olympic, Olympic athlete. In other words, a crown is an award, it is, I'm sorry, an award for good performance. And since our salvation isn't based on our performance, this crown of life cannot be earned as part of salvation. And every use of the crown of a, as a symbol in the New Testament is associated with good works for Christ, as we find in 2 Timothy 4 and verses 7 and 8. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my, my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them uh, that also that love his appearing." 
So the consistent meaning of this symbol of crown, it, it, it precludes the interpretation that the crown of life is salvation. We understand that can't be. And furthermore, we also know that the Bible never suggests that salvation is earned or that it is secured by our efforts. So not, not surprisingly then, salvation is never described as a crown. We understand that. So then what is a crown then? Crowns are symbolic representations of our eternal reward, and different crowns are awarded for different acts of faithfulness. The crown of life is given to those who endure persecution faithfully, as we see here in, Re in Revelation 2. James confirms this interpretation as we read in James 1 and verse 12, blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he re shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Paul also tells us that our performance in serving Christ determines the crown that we receive in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 through 25, know ye not that they which run in the race run all, uh, but one receiveth the prize, so run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is tempered in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible, incorruptible. So Smyrna was told that the persecution was coming, and it might lead to, the, to, to death, no doubt, at the hands of the Jews who were persecuting the church. But if they were faithful to Christ to the end, there was going to be a, an award, a reward waiting for them in the end. But notice, it says that those who overcome, in verse number 11, will, uh, th 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 that we will overcome the second death. It says, he that overcometh shall not be hurt in the second death. Again, as I pointed out last week, every single one of these letters, they end with an assurance to the believer that although the church might not be completely accomplishing all that God would have them to do, and there might be punishment for the church itself as a whole, for the for the uh, the the missteps in, in the will of God in, uh, from the church's life, it doesn't affect the relationship of the believer with their Savior. Because it's not based on that. It's based off what the Lord has done. Let me just close quickly with this. So what about the prophetic value of the letter, letter then, though? We've seen how the historical context has been flushed out as we've gone through tonight. We've seen some of the perpetual sense and how it's universal and timeless and still applies to us today. But what about futuristic prophecy in this way? Well, we already know that Smyrna is the church of persecution or death. We can put it that way. And that re reflects the history of the church. See, following the first century, the church entered into a period of persecution under Roman oppression that would last for more than 200 years. This period began more or less with the emperor Domitian around AD 96 and continued until the early 4th century. Another interesting thing to note, that the period of time between uh, the beginning of this persecution and when this next period we'll talk about next week begins, there were 10 Roman emperors that ruled as well. Christ said that they would be in there for how many days? 10 days of persecution and prison. So that might be a, a forecast of that. I'm not saying neither here nor there, but it's an interesting side thought nonetheless. The history of the church following that, the apostolic age, though, therefore, mirrors the events that are found here in this second letter. And therefore, we can conclude that the second letter represents the second period of the church, the period that we would call the period of persecution. The dates for this persecution begin at 100 AD with the division from the prior period as we talked about last week. But the question is, is when do they end? 
when does this persecution come to an end? Well, they end with the beginning of the next period, no doubt. And I think that the beginning of that next period is clearly identifiable. There's a clearly identifiable moment that begins this next period as we begin to study the next uh, church, the letter of Pergamos. And we will find out what that letter has to say next week. And so we're going to pause right there and pick up next week. But I'm so grateful that you're here tonight. Let's pray, and then we'll collect our prayer cards and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for what you've allowed us to learn from your word and what you've given us uh, to know about the future as well. Lord, I ask now that you'd bless our time in this word and that you would uh, help us to have, uh, have grown closer to you because of it. Lord, I ask that you hear our request here in just a moment as well, and that you'll answer them according to your will and your way. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.